woke up in the morning, love, and the sunlight hurts my eyes. Something without warning, love, bears heavy on my mind. Then I look at you, and the world's alright with me. Just one look at you, and I know it's gonna be a love. HHFM 103.5. I'm your host, Justin Farmer, inviting you to be in community with us, with community members who are making a difference. Today, our guest is Robin Wansley, a Minneapolis city councilor. Uh, so good to have you, fam. How are you this morning? Justin, thank you so much for inviting me on. I'm doing super, super well because I get to start off my day speaking with you. Hey. <laughs> um, I So uh, we got to meet a couple of months ago at the uh, uh, the DSA elected uh, uh, event, and that was so much fun. I, I guess the first question, you know, before we get into all asking you, like, how do you run and what are you doing and where are you up to? Um, you know, how, what was your political journey? How did you get in to having a politic, right? Cause to have to say that you're a socialist or a Democrat or this or that, like, where did that come from for you? Yeah. Um, I, I get this question a lot of how did I, I get to this place of identifying as a, democratic socialists and also my pathway towards uh, choosing independence in the midst of that or independent political affiliation. Um, and I would say life as a, a black working class woman who's grown up in between uh, different, you know, segments of class status of like poor, straight poor, and also predominantly working class through my parents um, and Growing up specifically on the south side of Chicago, which if anyone follows, you know, anything about Chicago is also one of the most uh, racially segregated um, cities in the United States. Um, and very much, you know, growing up on the south side where or through intentional decisions made by public officials like myself and you, though I don't think we're ratchet like those folks. Um, they, you know, concentrated predominantly poor working class black folks um, on the south side and west side of Chicago. And through that, they uh, championed a program of divestment in those communities. So for me growing up and seeing my mom and dad having to work multiple jobs or, you know, work 70 hour weeks to pay a slum landlord for, you know, not even quality housing standards or seeing my schools constantly, constantly um, under the threat of closure, um, struggling to figure out, you know, where we're going to get quality health care and all that stuff, seeing you no know, parks in my neighborhood or seeing, you know, public housing be underfunded, all sorts of things, you know, that really 
like illuminated for me that this seems to be a reality just for black people. Cause when I went to college, uh, which I went to Carlton, predominantly white, predominantly wealthy, those people were living the best of their lives. They had not experienced any of those realities. So I think for me, it's always been through life circumstances or through our current socioeconomic system that really um, forced folks who look like me, my loved ones, a really crappy hand <laughs> and we had to figure out how to hustle and grind to get everything that we needed but also being like we live in a society where like elon musk exists or jeff bezos people who got tons of money why is people like me struggling to make ends meet and socialism kind of came up through college and through social movements like occupy wall street black lives matter mm-hmm. Um, seeing those movements of masses of people say, no, it shouldn't be like this. No, this economic system sucks and it's ghetto and we're all struggling. Really, for me, pointed to, you know, we have an alternative path um, in our society that we can organize for. And that was life changing. And I've kind of I've dedicated my life towards that work, towards organizing alongside working class people for better socioeconomic conditions, for investments in our public institutions ever since. Um, and I carry that, you know, dedication into this role as an elected official where we do have a platform to, you know, make material changes happen for everyday people. Um, so that's kind of like my, <laughs> how I got here story. No, that, uh, I, 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 it's always funny because, right, college is a time that you, you're able to learn so much about yourself. Um, but, you know, I think it's interesting that you mentioned Occupy because there's a whole generation now that they weren't around for Occupy, right? <laughs> that's so weird. Right? Oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, so, you know, what, you know, what made you decide to run, um, you know, uh, learning about you, reading about you, um, very educated, uh, doing tons of different jobs, organizing. And so what made you make the shift from organizing as a profession to organizing in the political realm? Um, in terms of what, what brought me to this work of organizing, and I, I've never seen professionally and politically as separate, mm-hmm. um, honestly, I, I think that was also, you know, organizing work happened for me through life circumstances. Mm-hmm. Um, for my personal testimony that I didn't share of how I also came to uh, identifying as a democratic socialist and being invested in political advocacy was largely through one particular sibling of mine's, uh, my brother who spent 30 years behind bars, mm. uh, largely for offenses related to drug possession, which right now all across the country, we're seeing massive, you know, and this is that the, the, the pushing of, you know, many of our, our social movements, Black Lives Matter included, for the decriminalization of, of, of marijuana specifically. And, and you have loved ones like my brother who lost a large portion of their lives mm. um, and had to endure lifelong trauma, still dealing with that, of being behind bars in our inhumane uh, prison systems. Um, and seeing him go through that experience, um, 
And also, again, going to college, being exposed to other places, other cities, other countries, and recognizing that this is not normal. Mm -hmm. um, there are tons of communities where prisons do not exist, where, at least for my peers in you know, college, they never visited a prison, never had a loved one, especially for a drug possession, which I saw them all do, uh, all sorts of drugs, rainbows of drugs, never spent any jail time or prison time. And for me, it was like that that's not right. Like, it's never been like a really major thing for me to be like, wait, that don't seem right. I want to do something about that. Um, and that's kind of where my organizing has always been rooted of like, this is not just uh, why is this reality different from the reality of these groups of people? What is making that reality so where these groups of people are being, you know, confined towards a repeated cycle of incarceration and these folks who don't look like them racially or have similar class, you know, uh, uh, connections don't have that reality. Um, so for me, you know, I always look for where are the spaces where I can do something about this and for college it was Black Lives Matter that was uh, really organizing around this, as well as the mass incarceration movement mm. or anti-mass incarceration movement, thinking of uh, Dr. Michelle, or sorry, attorney uh, Michelle Alexander at that time, who was doing a lot of work around her book, The New Jim Crow. Um, so that for me was spaces where I could be responsive to the conditions in which, you know, alter my life, alter the life of my loved ones. Um, and that has rippled. Same with, you know, economics. Like, again, parents struggle. I've struggled. I've worked multiple jobs to pay the rent, like most, you know, folks, working class folks in our country. And it wasn't until 2016 where we had the Fight for 15 movement, which by that time for several years have been organizing, made its way to Minnesota or Minneapolis where I was like, oh, we shouldn't have to wait, you know, work three jobs and still earn poverty wages. That doesn't make sense. So that gave me a space to be like, hey, let's do something about addressing poverty wages. Um, so for me, life and organizing have always gone hand in hand, which I think is the black radical tradition, because I want to note that too, of like that's part of our work of black people's conditions, living in a system of racial capitalism that literally profits off of our exploited labor or free labor that profits off of our despair, our sickness, everything about the black existence wreaks profit for some wealthy company or, or entity. We've often had no choice but to organize, but to advocate, but to protest um, in order to say, why aren't we treated as humans? Why aren't we, you know, given the same civil liberties as everyone else? So for me, it's always been that connection. And that made sense for me in running for office, especially in the wake of George Floyd, where it's like, this was preventable. Like everyone recognized that George Floyd did not have to be lynched. And I want to emphasize lynched in a way that he was for 10 plus years, elected officials knew our police department here in Minneapolis was rotted. So many people, specifically black folks, lost loved ones to the hands of the violence committed by police officers and they did nothing. They did absolutely nothing. Um, they knew they could have done all sorts of things before George Floyd and yet decided not to utilize their political power. And that's just not my love language. Love language is acts of service for me or it's, hey. it's action. So if there's an opportunity to act on behalf of my community, alongside my community and advancing their collective well-being and interests um, and improving their quality of life, I'm going to go to those spaces and City Hall seems to be the space that needed that type of leadership and response. 
And I'm, I'm glad I had a community that was willing to like support me in that journey. And we've been rocking ever since, like me and our social movements, like fighting for black lives, indigenous lives, um, for housing rights, for a public safety uh, model that goes beyond policing, for more taxations on the wealthy. Um, so we can fund our public institutions. So that's kind of my long journey of like that. Organizing is part of life. Like it's really the basic of like feminism one-on-one of like the personal is political. Like I, I haven't had no choice in this, like most working class people. No, that I, fam, I was looking for a way to highlight Jamaica's independence. As soon as fam said three jobs, I was like, yo, you honorary Jamaican. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, That's real. That's real though. That is real. The um for those of y'all who are just joining us, you're listening to Just in Time Conversations, WN HH FM one oh three point five. Uh we're talking to Robin Wansley, uh Minneapolis City Councilor, um talking about uh uh so much about what got you into this, seeing that you kind of jumped into it, you know. What's going on with policing in your city? I know back in June, uh, the Department of Justice uh, released a report. Uh, What has happened since then in your city? Has there been changes, implementations? And it was a pretty damning document saying that there has been systemic uh, uh, disregard and and neglect. So what's going on? How are people feeling? How are you feeling about it? And and where where do people need to move next in terms of public safety? Mm-hmm. So yes, as as you uh, mentioned, we just um, had the Department of Justice out in June um, come to Minneapolis and share um, the findings of their multi year investigation um, of the Minneapolis Police Department. Um, this came. Um, in the wake of, again, George Floyd's murder um, and the uprising that took place here. Um, But I also want to highlight prior to the Department of Justice, we also had an unprecedented thing happen here in Minnesota where our Minnesota Department of Human Rights actually led an investigation of our police department Mm -hmm. uh, first um, and rendered a, a consent decree, which we often only hear about on the national sense or federal sense, which basically is a a legal agreement um, that police departments have to enter into with a governmental agency um, that says, oh, you have failed to be in compliance in the case of both of these consent decrees, the feds and the state, you have failed to be in compliance with basic human rights law. Also, you failed to be in compliance with basic um, constitutional rights law too. Um, So we have both of those reports come out and say, oh, okay, police, just, you know, like what black and indigenous and every, you know, working class or poor person of color that has had contact with um, our law enforcement system, they found that it is racist, it is violent, and it is misogynistic. Um, It has brutalized uh, thousands of working class people and have not been reprimanded or held to account by those that oversee it. Um, And in the case of Minneapolis and like most metropolitan cities, uh, those overseers historically have been the mayor 
um, and in some degree, city council, the position that we get to inhabit. But in Minneapolis, it's always been under the authority of the mayor. So for 10 plus years, the mayor, other elected officials uh, decide to ignore uh, the realities that working class uh, folks of color have been experiencing at the hands of law enforcement. Um, and, you know, that all led to us watching, the world watching George Floyd uh, mm. be lynched uh, by Derek Chauvin and his complicit uh, law enforcement bystanders who sat there and watched as well for nine, basically nine minutes in May uh, 2020. So in the findings of that, you know, for the past three years since George Floyd's murder, there's been an ongoing conversation of where is Minneapolis in the midst of this? How much change, as you mentioned, we've, we've made? And unfortunately, uh, we have not made much change when uh, thinking about the traditional political structure. Our social movements are, of course, continue, continuously organizing. Mm. Um, and there's been fruits from their labor. We now, under this mandate for a new system of public safety, um, we've created a new um, organizational structure called our Office of Community Safety that has put all our public safety services into one um, office. It has also uh, legitimized a loan demand of our social movements to start investments in um, unarmed safety personnel like violence interrupters. We now have a unarmed mental health uh, response uh, program that has been widely successful. And we're looking at making investments into other similar programs, you know, sending out experts to respond to domestic violence calls, or, you know, we've de-armed uh, our traffic control um, uh, employees too. So we're seeing investments in that. And that's largely, again, because our social movements, working class people, black people have continued to organize and say, we can't just keep investing and law enforcement, which gets us results like lynchings of George Floyd, or in the case of just even a week ago, Ricky Cobbs, we had a, uh, another murder at the hands of law enforcement of a black man while driving and in, in traffic violation ended up with him losing his life. So we've seen, again, social movements continue to press, but in terms of the traditional political system, the mayor um, and the chief of police, even the commissioner of this new office, the Office of Community Safety, they have been more invested, and I would say my colleagues too on council, in advancing a facade or a PR campaign uh, to make it seem as if we're doing deep changes. But um, what a consistent part of my job is amplifying what's real. And what is real is we continue to hire officers that have um, very troubling um, and abusive uh, histories of, of misconduct. We literally just had a case where we brought over a man who tased an unarmed black man um, in Virginia. That got settled. So taxpayers in Virginia had to pay for this officer's uh, misconduct. And for some reason, our police department said, hey, you seem great. Come on over here. And through exposing that, the media had to expose that. That was the only way this person, this officer was released. But if that had not happened, this officer could have been over here continuing a history of misconduct and, and violence. Uh, we just learned um, our police chief just did a reorganization of police command staff um, yesterday. All of these officers have 26, 25 years of history in this department. So they're entrenched, one of which their new command leader just uh, was uh, found to have lied about a supervisee of theirs hitting a suspect with their car and them omitting it. So <laughs> we've seen How do you again, forget that someone hit you with a car? Like, oh yeah, I don't remember. Maybe. Well, let me say, 
but they lied. So their supervisor told them, I hit the suspect with my car, and the command staff at that time omitted it from their report intentionally. And this is the person you've promoted to oversee our consent decree. So we're seeing officers with similar histories who have extensive complaints of misconduct now overseeing the very legal settlement that's supposed to rein them in for these, you know, inhumane, unconstitutional practices, the very people who were in violation of them for 20 something years. So we're seeing the system and the self still rotate quote unquote bad apples, but thinking that the consent decree gives them cover of like, oh, we're doing stuff. No, and the public is recognizing that and they're paying for it. We've had to pay or our taxpayers have had to pay out over a hundred million dollars in police settlements over the past, you know, 10 years. Also additional hundred in worker comps claims because officers are mad that they're having to do basic reforms and they've basically left the department um, and used PTSD as a way to do so. So there has unfortunately amongst the traditional system, it's, it's still committed to a status quo model of law enforcement, but I am so glad through social movements and working class people organizing around it, we're seeing ourselves winning the war on the larger conversation in the future around public safety. These are battles that sometimes are lost or that we're making you know, strides, but we're winning the war. We just stopped the rebuilding of the third precinct where uh, Derek Chauvin and his officers and other violent officers were housed. Um, again, we got this new department or new office of community safety. We're getting investments in unarmed safety personnel. So we're winning a war. Um, we're shrinking the blueprint of, uh, you know, law enforcement facilities, whereas you look at Atlanta and they're talking about taking over a whole forest to build a playground for cops. Um, we've had even my own colleagues who are anti-defunders, they've taken money from the police to advance uh, non-law uh, enforcement um, issues like, like economic development. So you're seeing even quote unquote, anti-defunders recognizing we need to take the excess dollars from the police department to invest in the things that our own constituents care about. Um, so we're seeing strides on so many other fronts, but that's largely because working class people, not because of the, the old guard that still exists and are still committed to a, a safety system that does not keep us all safe. Mm. For those of y'all who are just joining us, you're listening to WNHH. FM 103.5, myself, Justin Farmer, our esteemed guest, Robin Rosley, uh, Minneapolis City Councilor. Uh, we were just talking about, um, you know, the report that came out from the DOJ, the changes, some substantial changes, right? Uh, having unarmed personnel uh, start to deal with traffic uh, and to, to deal with uh, mental health crisis though that that is huge right um uh, with all of that going on and with all the things that are going on uh, across the country and in the city how what is your general uh feeling of what's going on in minneapolis and what how how are you feeling how is your head and heart thinking about us going into this next election cycle Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not going to front this past, the past three years have been challenging is not, um, <laughs> it, it, it doesn't even fully encompass, um, 
I, I, challenging. It's been heartbreaking. It's been demoralizing at times. It's been frustrating. Um, and I say all these uh, descriptors uh, in response to the fact that for the past three years, we've seen in Minneapolis um, the conservative and corporate class unite to lead a um, very um, aggressive uh, white backlash campaign against working class people for daring to raise up in the millions um, in May of 2020. And since then, you know, to George Floyd's uh, lynching, um, they've led this campaign to really put working class people in their place to try to uh, remind them of sorts that they are not actually in power when what May 2020 showed all along and reinforced what we've known all along is that we were, we have always been in power. When we link up by the masses, when we say we want different outcomes for our public um, infrastructures, but also to say those public infrastructures should be supporting the well-being of our neighbors. And that well-being means looking like everyone has shelter. Everyone has, uh, you know, jobs that don't just pay um, poverty wages, where we all have fully funded public schools, um, where we all have quality and free health care. Those are the things that we should be building. Um, and those are the demands that echo, you know, following George Floyd's uh, murder and the historic uprising that came to be. And that put all the powerful people on the black, on, on a back foot. That put them on the defense. In Minneapolis, we saw the corporate uh, class or, you know, the, the ruling class of our city, as, and we saw this all across the country, that really had to flee for a moment. Because uh, I was like, what? What's going on? Like, we couldn't control nothing. People was like, forget these stores forget what your property, all of this, like we will not tolerate a system that continues to brutalize us and treat us less than the humans that we are. Um, and for three years, those forces have been really sulking um, in their egos and, and their power tripping and doing everything possible, advancing dangerous and, and, and life-threatening policies and initiatives, especially in Minneapolis, of our, our uh, City tried to lead a development um, project that would have effectively, for generations to come, poisoned predominantly Black and Indigenous uh, residents of ours through the release of arsenic, uh, of an arsenic plume. Um, and we had to fight that a tooth and nail. Again, the audacity of our my colleagues to even try to advance the conversation around rebuilding the third precinct, the, the precinct that resident burnt down or, or took down in the wake of George Floyd's murder. Um, we literally had the, the Fry administration here, the Mayor Fry administration, try to ignore that and say, we're gonna build it back, screw you, um, because we need to believe in law enforcement. We need to stand behind our cops. That was the takeaway. Um, we've seen um, our colleagues fight against all sorts of housing mandates that would actually make our city more affordable and allow working class people uh, who want to be here, live here, and afford uh, to live here. Um, they killed uh, rent control during E when three of our mm. Muslim colleagues were out practicing their faith. They thought that was a great time to kill it, um, and two of which were the authors of this bill. So we've seen the corporate ruling class here and conservative ruling class here unite together to really put us in our place. Um, and I think we're seeing that all across the country. We're seeing a larger movement around ultra right wing 
um, you know, political interests, um, really invigorating working class white folks. And I would say a segment of us, because some of us come in there too, they get us too. Um, and by us, I mean, you know, our black and brown and, and, that and, auntie. and folks, you know, that I, I'm like spelling it out for the listeners. <laughs> um, they're pulling us in and they're using, again, the, the crises of our economic system, which the Biden administration has tried to smooth over, you know, uh, in the wake of the pandemic, where we did see investments in, in public programs that did uplift people, especially children, out of poverty. And because corporate interests said, nah, we need you to stop subsidizing the people and go back to subsidizing us, you need to start cutting all these programs, which the Biden administration immediately, uh, you know, capitulated to, and then t double that down with also constantly undermining, um, you know, workers' interests, a railroad, uh, railroad strike, and, mm. and forcing them to go back to work and, um, you know, Circum circumventing their contract negotiations, um, that really solidify again the De Democratic Party, who their allegiance is really to. Um, even when you got thousands of people struggling, you know, railroad uh, workers are putting their lives at risk. Towns or working class people in other towns uh, who are having these, you know, cargo uh, trains go through them with dangerous chemicals. And now we're seeing accidents happen like in Ohio. Um, you know, we're we're seeing all these things happening. The Biden administration is just ignoring, like per usual, like Democrats and other cities. Um, so we're seeing that happen under the Biden administration. And then you see fascist interests like the Trumps and the, the DeSantis. Uh, their response to that is say, you know what? Yes, that is not right. The Democrats suck. But you know why? Um, things are really sucky for you, uh, average Joe white man in Florida. It's because of critical race theory. No, it's because they're allowing trans people to exist, and you should be mad about that. So they're rolling out really these things. These are things they don't care about, but they're trying to also build their forces of people, um, and it's a, a forces of people behind a vision that is very scary. That looks like, and people don't want to acknowledge what led to. Um, the Nazi regime is literally using the same playbook, divide and conquer people, a uh, censorship, uh, slowly lead um, what I'm going to name genocidal campaigns, which is what's happening mm. to our trans relatives um, towards immigrants or migrants. We're seeing that, you know, with migrants or immigrants coming over from other parts of the world that we've helped destabilize, that climate change is destabilized. We're seeing them flee, and now we're seeing right-wing governments um, use them as a tool to, like, you know, consolidate more, um, you know, support amongst uh, working-class people who are saying, why are we providing more public support to folks who just got here? I've been out of work, or I'm struggling, and things of that nature. So that's the answers that they're providing to working-class people, and the Democratic Party is over here being like, well, everything's good. What you mean? Unemployment is low. We're straight over here. What's the problem? So and, and that minimum wage is the same. Same. Like what you what we don't need to raise that. 725 is completely fine. We're not in a place to do that. And it's just like, what are you talking about? So it does make 2024, which we always experience this with every election cycle. It's like the battle of our lives. But 2024 is really scary because we've seen the right wing really um boost the hell up on their program. 
they have effectuated it or actualized it in several states of Texas and actually nationally they've been able to use the Supreme Court to advance it with the fall of Roe v. Wade and um, you know, affirmative action, all these things that social movements fought for. So 2024 does for a lot of people feel bleak. And it backing of like, it's not like the Democratic Party is really looking like the party that's going to have our back because they haven't shown to have it thus far. And again, going with what we're doing is fine. What we're doing is working. And we hear that here in Minneapolis. That was the same or that's the same mantra of the Fry administration when it comes to policing, to housing. They're like, everything is working. Everything is fine. Why do you keep talking about rent control? Why do you keep talking about redirecting investments away from the police department and to other public safety initiatives that actually keeps us safe? Why do you keep talking about climate change and doing real things behind that? What we're doing is fine. Shut up. And working with these people are just like, what? No. So that is why I'm also a socialist, because that is the answer of the current system that we live in. That is the answer for political officials who uh, behold themselves to a corporate system like that, that doesn't help us have a quality of life. Everything is fine. And under those conditions, you can bet you'll always have social organizing or working class people organizing for something better. And as socialists and socialist elected leaders, our task is to align ourselves with those working class people and use our spaces of authority like this, you know, this job of city council or whatever position you have um, that you've been elected to and to amplify those things, to proactively, you know, initiate um, policy requests, budgetary amendments, all those sorts of things uh, that you get to do with this job to amplify what working class people are organizing around, what they've been organizing around, um, because we know the playbook of the other side. They're going to say everything is fine until we all are underwater or burning up. <laughs> we can't rely on them. No, I, so what I heard was that got some feelings <laughs> <laughs> all of us got feelings yeah it's hard to yeah yeah lots of feelings so what inspires you who inspires you in this work right like if you were talking to the next people coming up right who are some people in, that inspire you and what are some things that you're working on that are inspiring you to say you know this is the course Mm -hmm. It's always working class people with social movements. As I, I mentioned, uh, you, we could, which yes, I have my feelings about national events and that socialists were supposed to like keep a pulse on how the ruling class is moving, how working class people are dealing under these exploitive uh, conditions that we're all living under. And then how are they responding? And to me, that's where I find the inspiration because working class people stay responding. They stay coming up with a proactive vision um, and, and solutions uh, to the crises that we're experiencing. Um, and they're brilliant. Like they're just brilliant. And oftentimes they're figuring out with like gum paste, uh, staples and tape, they're they're using everything that they have limited supplies to also advance these things i mean like folks have always been responding in my community in minneapolis they were doing mental health responses long before we finally formalized it like working class people have you know created their own systems of of um banking or you know lending one another uh money to get through dire times so they can pay you know their rent and stuff uh, as they're working under this federal, you know, 725 mandate of a minimum wage. So I find so much inspiration with working class people, which is why I think in this work, people are like, how do you sustain yourself? 
Because, yes, if I put all my hope in the actual system and my colleagues who I know who they're beholden to and my, our trash mayor um, who constantly proves themselves to be a coward and a, a bullhorn for corporate conservative interests, like, yes, I would be demoralized. And I know that happens for some of my colleagues who still have faith in that particular brand of, 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 of a system, of a political system. Um, but mine is with the people when who rose up immediately and said, no, you're not putting this third precinct back, what you mean? And organized to block that, not one time, but two times for two separate locations. Um, my allegiance and my hope comes from the thousands of indigenous and black and Latino residents um, who rose up for 10 years, 10 years um, to tell the city, you will not put a water facility or one of your projects in our neighborhoods that's going to poison us, that's going to um, make it so that our kids have uh, asthma and respiratory conditions that will compromise their quality of life. And for 10 years, they organized and like showed up to advance that to the point that we finally won um, just a couple of months on, on that. Um, it's the folks who are organizing in even Atlanta in the midst of everything around Cop City, the fact that they said, oh, you took a vote and you still gonna pass money? Cool, we'll put on a referendum, like we're not done. Oh, you took one of our, you murdered one of our comrades um, cold-bloodedly and your police lied about it? That's fine. In, in their honor, in their memory, we're gonna keep this fight going. This, this is not happening. This is not being built. So it's working class people, even in the South. I mean, I think we heard that at the DSA conference of seeing how our socialist colleagues are still advancing um, struggles in the South. Justin, who's another political, uh, you know, ally in that work of, of progressive organizing when he and his fellow, you know, elected Justin was like exiled by right wing elected officials, white elected officials in Tennessee. Shout out to all the Justins. Shout out to all the Justins. <laughs> like, literally, I know it was a, a moment of despair for them individually, I can imagine, but immediately their community rose up and was like, oh, no, we got you back. And immediately organized to send one of them back. And they said, hey, Justin, we got you too. Like, they're organizing and we're going to send more people with you. Like, like <laughs> I'm so, I'm so in love with our people. Even yesterday, like, let's have a real ratchet moment of, like, the Alabama slammer or the uh, Sweet Tea Green Party fight. Shout out to like Alabama, <laughs> Montgomery, Alabama. Like our folks swimming across ferries and docks <laughs> to show up for our like working class brother security guard who was just trying to do his job and got attacked by white people trying to take their boat entitled white people who wasn't supposed to be out there. And the man was just trying to do his job. And they, and I want to emphasize that they could have killed him. They would have likely killed him if he had not gotten help from fellow black folks who were also just trying to go about their day and enjoy their lives. That gives me hope. Seeing moments like that, like our folks swimming across waters, showing up for our brothers and sisters when they're in crisis. Like that is that is what gives me hope and lets me know we're gonna be all right. It's, it sucks in the midst of it, but we're gonna be all right. And we're gonna figure this out because we stay figuring this out because we actually love and care about one another. That is the deep essence of why we keep showing up. So that gives me hope, and that's what gives me the stamina and the the inspiration, or even the little bit of strength on the days when I ain't got none to go back in, because I know I'm not alone. 
I got my crew and they're not just here in Minneapolis or Minnesota. I'm connected to networks like yourself, like all across the country who are like, no, we got, we got one another back and there's more of us than it is of them who don't have our backs. Facts, right? That, 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 that is the key. I'm just saying people have been sleeping on the connection. What Shirley Chisholm said about the folding chair. I'm just saying. They've been sleeping on it. Can the Black DSA caucus or Socialist caucus literally have a folding chair, bring a folding chair today uh, uh, to work day, and then we all pass resolutions, honorary resolutions of the chairman? I know everyone got different names for for bro, but like we all need to do that and then sing our new Black national anthem called Lift Every Chair and Sing. We all should do that. We all should do that. <laughs> I uh as we're nearing towards the end of our time um you know what where where can people connect with you how can people find you you know Yeah um your so- socials your website like how how do people connect with you learn with you grow with you and I'm so excited for that because, again, it's the people who keeps me invigorated for this work. Um, folks can find me on all the social media channels. So Twitter is Robin, uh, number four, MPLS. Uh, the same is for my Instagram, uh, Robin, four, MPLS. Um, for Facebook is Robin, F-O-R-M-P-L-S. And then if you want to check out the things that we're working on, because you did mention that question earlier of like, what's to come and to come is still like organizing working class people alongside working class people around uh, solutions towards our housing crisis, towards the climate crisis, towards our public safety crisis. Um, and some of that looks like investments in, um, uh, um, Sorry, not investments, but yeah, no, continuing to make mass investments and taking that away from traditional law enforcement programs into unarmed safety services. So we have a whole platform on that. Um, Similar around housing, we need to pass a strong rent control policy, 3%, uh, no vacancy control and no exemptions or exceptions, passing vacancy fees on uh, corporate developers that keep their units uh, empty while people are sleeping on the streets or facing housing insecurity. Um, we have a whole robust climate change uh, platform that we're advancing and, and advancing looks and like looks a lot like municipalizing a lot of uh, services hey. uh, that we look to energy or utility companies who, at least in Minnesota, they're accumulating billions in profits while also asking for um, price hikes. So again, increasing their extraction and making people's energy bills go up. So we need to figure out how to reverse that or like get them out the market altogether if you're not going to be a public utility like in its core essence um, and just trying to break people's pockets. Um, So we have a whole bunch of uh, proposals that we've developed and that we've listened to from working class people and we've all put them together on my website, uh, robinfornpls.com. Um, if folks want to check that out and also learn how you can support us in advancing that here um, in Minneapolis, 
Um, my website has a whole list of ways you can get involved from either donating. Um, we also have volunteer opportunities. Um, and best believe we do have people who volunteer with our campaign who live in other places outside of Minneapolis. Because again, this is the interconnected movement. But also, yeah, if there's so many other ways, if there's people you know in Minneapolis who would love to be a part of it, or experts, like policy experts, like I would like to provide suggestions on this thing that you're talking about, like we welcome all of that feedback. So uh, if you go to either one of those social media channels, IG, Facebook, uh, Twitter, um, I, I, I'm not gonna plug my TikTok super hard because we, we ain't added videos to that in a while, but uh, we're even on there. Uh, but all of those uh, spell out ways in which you can continue to support um, the not only social movement, political movement we're build, building here in Minneapolis, but the socialist movement mm -hmm. and program that we're advancing here that is grounded in everyday people's realities and their power um, and how we're doing that through a model of political independence um, and how we're looking to expand that. So I'm so excited to be able to do that that work and also like continue to support folks like you, Justin, too. Um, so yeah, no, thank you so much for letting me be on today. And yeah, folks never hesitate to reach out to us. The one last question and, and, and you know, we got a couple of minutes left. Just my favorite question I always ask people is what's a favorite song or a song that speaks to you to connect us to you, connect us to the movement? What's a song that you can leave us with that we can go and check out and, you know, connect on a deeper level? Oh, see, now you got me pulling up my YouTube uh, <laughs> playlist here. Because what? That is hard. Um, That is so hard. Um, <laughs> I'm like, I want to go. And it's also like shifting now because now I need to know like, uh, I, I still need to listen to the um, Sweet Tea, uh, the Boston Sweet Tea Party. You know, there's a song right right now uh, for that. So I'm like, shoot, that might be it right now, but I ain't even listened to it. Um, I think, and this is going to be super, I'm going to say Cha-Cha Slide only because rest in peace, hey. DJ Asper. And then pair that with Beyonce because she is the queen and specifically Formation. Um, <laughs> because it talks about coordination, like cha-cha slide, you can go anywhere in the world. And if that mug comes on, everyone gets information. They know, they know the moves. It's a moment of joy. We know when to clap. We know when to skip or hop. Like it does not matter. It translates or it transcends all sorts of boundaries. And I find that very beautiful. And I find that even that, you know, in the wake of DJ Casper's, uh, transition in life the physical life um that he gave us that to be able to like connect with one one another like a line dance and then beyonce like for the culture at that moment like folks are getting information we stay getting information repeatedly um whether it's at a montgomery you know boat dock <laughs> get information real quick if it's around atlanta city here in Minneapolis, around the third precinct and standing for George Floyd and so many other victims, we stay finding ways to get information and coordinate and organize ourselves. We're also finding joy in the midst of all of that because we have to have that in order to keep doing this work because uh, 
were motivated by love in its essence. And I think that's so beautiful. So I, well, I'm, I'm going to compliment Cha-Cha Slide with Formation from Beyonce. Well, thank you, Robin. It was wonderful to be in community with you. Uh, for those of y'all who are listening, until next time, let us continue to plant the seeds of change so we can grow together. Yeah. Uh, y'all, time to plane leaving? All right. See you at the airport. I'm leaving on the next plane. I don't know when I'll be back again. Kiss me and smile for me. Tell me that you wait for me. Hold me like you know I'll never go. Even though you know I will, I'm a traveling man moving through places.